0: Welcome to Academics of PA. I'm Josie Schaefer here with Bruce McDonald. Say hi, Bruce. Hey,
1: how's it going?
0: You were supposed to say hi, Bruce.
1: Oh, hi, I'm supposed to say my name well. Okay, hi, Bruce.
0: <laughs> Just kidding. We are about to introduce a great interview that Bruce did with the distinguished professor, James Perry, that I unfortunately missed. But yeah, you
1: totally ditched out on that one.
0: I did. I'm so sorry. I had a work-life balance issue.
1: You know, your sister had a baby, so I guess we can't fault you at that
0: one. Can't. I had to get the house ready. Baby came home that day. But I think it was really interesting because in this interview, James Perry talks about giving up some house life or home life for work life. So I think I made the right decision.
1: Definitely don't blame me there at all. But I think it was kind of a fun interview. It was definitely learned some stuff about him and his past Oh. I hadn't really expected.
0: He does a great job walking us through his history and lots of interesting tidbits from the beginning of his career.
1: True. All right. All right. Should we give it a listen? Let's go. One of the things that you know we had asked you to come on—I will admit—is a little bit of a uh, hidden secret that I didn't tell you ahead of time—is that you were one of the impetuses for creating the podcast in the first place. Uh, will and I had the idea for creating a podcast, you know, focusing on PA. We were trying to kind of figure out what niche you wanted to focus on, and you had posted a uh, note on Twitter about Hong Kong being your second home. And Will and I got into this nice long conversation about you know, how little we actually knew about you or the big names in the field.
2: Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. I spent a uh, semester there in 1986 as a Fulbright lecturer at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and that was my first exposure really to uh, foreign soil. And it was my first trip to Asia. I loved it, made lots of friends there. People who, with whom I interacted for the next uh, 40 years, and so or, or 30 plus years, not quite 40 years. But uh, both Hong Kong and China and also South Korea have been sort of second homes to me. And my wife would probably complain that I've spent more time there than I do with her in Bloomington. There's some truth to that. From time to time, but for the most part, uh, my wife and I have been together for 48 years. So uh, she's not counting all that dead time we've had.
1: <laughs> well, I have to admit, you know, thinking about Hong Kong and you know China in general, and comparing that to Bloomington, are very starkly different environments.
2: They are actually. I, uh, you know, I went to Hong Kong within uh, five months of having arrived in Bloomington. I arrived in Bloomington in. Uh, 1985 in August, and then I went to Hong Kong at the end of '85, about uh, the 26th of December, if I remember correctly. And uh, so it was only really a, f- a few short months being in the small town. Of course, prior to that, I had spent 11 years in Southern California. So you know, I've I've lived in various places. Chicago was a student at the University of Chicago in the '60s, a very tumultuous time. Mm-hmm. Uh, early 70s in Syracuse, which uh, is most memorable for all the snow we got. Then I went to Southern California to escape the snow for 11 years. Then I've returned back to the Midwest, which were my roots from my early years as a native of Wisconsin. Where in Wisconsin are you originally from? I'm from a small town called Two Rivers. It's on Lake Michigan. Uh, My wife and I now spend uh, summers in Door County, on the Door County Peninsula, which is about 60 miles north of our respective homes. We both grew up in Two Rivers in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, you know, it's just a marvelous part of the country that's a, a little bit slower than the coasts, opportunities for fishing, great food, lots of things we remember from our childhood. So it's marvelous to return there every summer for four months. We typically are in Wisconsin from mid-May to mid-September now. Of course that's the uh, beauty of retirement that you don't you're not necessarily tied down by uh, uh, fixed schedules associated with uh, teaching classes and obligations to uh, service and other things.
1: One of the things that kind of find interesting is you, know, you went to the University of Chicago for your undergrad was well, part of that reason because you are from Wisconsin so it's the close to home.
2: It really had nothing to do with being close to home. I have an identical twin brother, which is sort of an an important part of my life history. He and I uh, have taken different paths. I am the theoretician, so to speak, or the academic. He is the practitioner. He was 37 years as a city manager or assistant city manager. Uh, So we sort of took a fork in the road. We interestingly, have uh, degrees, uh, undergraduate degrees from the same program at the University of Chicago, graduate degrees from the same MPA program, Syracuse University, the Maxwell School, and then uh, he went off to uh, practice, and I stayed on to get my PhD. So uh, we have similar life histories, uh, certainly during our first 23 or so years uh, but we also have some affinity for public service. But I took a different direction than he did, uh, and uh, he's to some extent my anchor for uh, thinking about what we and the on the academic side of the field do with respect to our practitioner counterparts and peers.
1: That's really interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that you had a twin brother, but it's even more interesting that you kind of have that same path, and it's just the. PhD versus the practitioner side that really creates that diversification for you.
2: One of the problems with being an identical twin is that sometimes uh, you lose your own personal identity. And we grew up and we were raised in a, in a period where there was a, a certain amount of preference for be, twins being more alike than different. And uh, it really sort of took us to the point where we took that f- fork in the road. He went to practice and I went on for the continued on for the Ph.D. after the M.P.A. that we were, you know, we were able to sort of establish our distinct identities. It was very interesting. Then I went to Aspa conference last year in Denver, and uh, my brother had accompanied me. I think for two of the last three years at the Aspa conferences, and uh, people had been become accustomed to seeing him at Aspa conferences. Many people approached me. They would say, "Where's your brother?" And uh, what was interesting about that was that was the first time in about uh, since our uh, final days together as uh, MPA students at Syracuse in the early 1970s, where I sort of had the reminder that I was a twin and that for 40 years I had, you know, gone on to establish my distinct identity from him. But we, you know, we sort of appreciate one another's paths, but also recognize that We've had uh, very satisfying careers, even though they've been quite different in the broad field of public service. I think it's interesting, you know, especially you know, right now, we have one of the problems
1: of getting people to go into public service. You know, as the MP director here, you know, a lot of people come and you know, we'll talk to them about you know what job working in you know, government administration work looks like, benefits of it, you know, how they can contribute back to society, you know, things kind of along that kind of line. And I still have more people who are interested in the nonprofit side, even though it's harder to find nonprofit management jobs in North Carolina than it is on the public side. And part of that is there's this distrust amongst the students in terms of thinking about what government does and where they fit into it. And so it's interesting, not only did you go into it, but that you had a twin who did
2: as well. We grew up in a different era, and one of our first encounters as teenagers was with John Kennedy Kennedy. During the Wisconsin primaries, and that I think left a lasting impression with both of us. We also had parents who were of um, very modest means. My father was a foreman in local uh, manufacturing plant, an aluminum factory, but they always gave us an appreciation for reaching out to others. Of course, we also have our sort of our religious foundations, which is in the Catholic Church, and I although we're not sort of committed to the social consciousness of the Catholic Church deeply, I think uh, that sort of logic, that the emotion and the identification with uh, those who are in need, I think is something that also uh, has been sort of an important part of both my and my uh, twin brothers' uh, uh, foundations.
1: Well, in terms of you know, thinking about what you chose to major in undergrads, you did major in public affairs at Chicago. Did you consider any of the other fields that were kind of related back, which would be more along kind of what students would do now, or was public affairs really what you wanted to go into?
2: Well, public affairs was actually a new program was created when we were undergraduates. And I think because of the um, the high level of activism in the late 1960s, rather than looking at, for instance, a field like political science, which at uh, the University of Chicago at the time was highly distinguished because of uh, well-known political theorists. We both uh, were sort of attracted to a much more sort of engaged scholarship and an engaged major, and public affairs sort of fit that bill. It's sort of about four Generations removed or four iterations removed from the Harris School, which subsequently mm-hmm. I think sort of filled that gap or fill that role at the University of Chicago. but uh, no, I didn't sort of think real seriously i I thought maybe at the time that the University of Chicago focus was very theoretical and abstract, and I guess I was attracted to that on the one hand. But I was also attracted to uh, sort of making sense of the world, uh, you know, the world I encountered every day, and it sure seemed like uh, engaging in research projects related to the Model Cities Program, which was created in 1967 when when I was an undergraduate, and some of the other things that were happening uh, were much sort of closer to my to my heart, to my sort of to the core of my my self-identity. Of course, another thing that I did in 1968, actually, during the a period of the, uh, the Democratic Convention in Chicago that year, is I took an internship in a, a community called Beloit, Wisconsin, uh, that was funded for the summer by the International City Management Association, or at least at the time was called ICMA without sort of the county identification in the title. And, uh, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed working directly with the city manager. I took, took on my role as an intern the same day as a, a new assistant joined, uh, from who had been a, a graduate, I think of Northern Illinois who joined, uh, the city staff. Uh, and I had a, as close an association with the, uh, city manager, uh, and the other staff, the city attorney and other, and the, personnel directed the city planner, as the new assistant manager or administrator. So, um, you know, I, I sort of got pretty good exposure during that internship to uh, what local government was like. Although, for some reason, I never did, I think, seriously decide that local government was my Going to be my focus. I sort of thought about more about state or probably the federal government, but I think one reason why I became an academic is I also didn't see myself as a bureaucrat in the bowels and the in the inners of a, a major bureaucratic organization, sort of working within a fairly clear set of rules and uh, uh, restrictions and constraints that uh, is typically. Uh, limits uh, the activity of our bureaucrats, or at least that that's sort of the way we historically thought about bureaucrats uh, at the at the time in the uh, early 1970s.
1: Right. Now, in terms of thinking of why you went to academia instead of practice, you had mentioned you know, the bureaucratic aspect was part of your thought process that as an academic you could work to potentially improve that bureaucratic process, or was it just that you were interested in the subject matter A public service rather than necessarily the doing of the public service?
2: I I think it was more the uh, latter than the former. That is that I was sort of more or thinking more broadly about public service and not anything highly specific. Although you mentioned earlier, you know, going to the University of Chicago, University of Chicago, uh, and Maxwell uh, made uh, a difference for me in offering me essentially a, a full scholarship for my undergraduate years so that the tuition was covered. Being a uh, one of two college age students who were simultaneously going to college in a, a family that made less than uh, uh, twenty thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. uh, was consequential because the scholarship sort of covered the $4,000 a year it took to send the two of us to uh, the University of Chicago. And then when I applied for graduate schools, I applied to uh, Pitt and and American and a number of others. Maxwell School stepped forward with a National Defense Education Act fellowship, which was essentially a three-year ride that would permit me not only to get the master's degree but also the Ph.D. And they said, "Well, you don't have you can vacate it if you vacate the fellowship if you decide to uh, uh, end your academic career with a master's and go into practice." But at least the the fellowship to Maxwell sort of put me on the track of getting the Ph.D. and thinking in terms of the Ph.D., even though. I had sort of difficulty seeing my life, uh, you know, more than a couple of years or a year or two in advance. So uh, the fellowship and the, the funding for both the undergraduate and the graduate were highly consequential to, to the choices of where I went to graduate to undergraduate school and, and graduate school, and also, but also uh, had a fairly significant influence ultimately on becoming an academic rather than a practitioner.
1: Now, kind of looking back, do you wish you have, might have gone the practitioner route, or are you happy that you stayed on the act- academic side?
2: Uh, no regrets. I'm I'm sort of happy the direction I took. If I I can live uh, somewhat vicariously through my brother, and uh, he, I helped him write a book after his uh, the end of his uh, 37 year city management career, and I like to plug the book. It's called Blueprint for Building Community. Uh, which is available online uh, and through your local bookseller. You know, it's a it's an interesting memoir and also sort of a set of reflections and uh, depiction of of his career in two uh, cities in the Chicago area and the choices he confronted. So I really though have no regrets about becoming a uh, an academic or you know going into the university rather than uh, practicing it. Yeah, it might have been interesting, but I really have not sort of spent more than than two minutes, I think, of my career sort of thinking back to whether I might have preferred being a practitioner rather than an academic. And that's partly because, you know, I've had a, a very good, satisfying uh, career uh, in mm-hmm. the university and have, to be honest, have done, uh, you know, seemingly uh, an unlimited amount of uh, Interesting things, you know, spending three semesters at Yonsei University teaching in Korea, once as a Fulbright, once as a world-class university scholar, which was a Korea program to bring people in from overseas, spending my Fulbright time in Hong Kong, more recently uh, as a, a visiting uh, distinguished professor at the University of Hong Kong for three years uh, part-time, spending uh, Several stints in Washington, working uh, in the Health and Human Services and uh, the Corporation for National Community Service, spending time overseas uh, at the Catholic University of Belgium. Uh, I mean, those opportunities would not have been available to me had I become a practitioner. At least I don't think I, I can envision that having happened. But they certainly made life interesting. And at the same time, Spent six years as the editor in chief of PAR. I was associate dean at the University of California, Irvine, the Graduate School of Management, for a couple of years. Before I left there, I was associate dean uh, for SPIA uh, on on the IUPUI campus. So, you know, I've had, even though I've had uh, a relatively short uh, or few number of stops. At universities along the way, I've really had uh, quite varied and uh, stimulating uh, experiences. And, and for me, you know, as, a, as I also think of uh, being first a scholar rather than an administrator or activist or a public servant, I've also been able to sort of satisfy my intellectual curiosity, which is probably what took me to the University of Chicago to begin with, and sort of made that an interesting experience, but it's it's been something that I valued and have internalized and embraced, I think my whole career. And so being able to stay engaged in intellectually interesting challenges and uh, questions has been uh, really sort of a a very fulfilling experience. Maybe I would have done that as, as a practitioner but but I don't think about that much. I'm really sort of very happy with the course I took.
1: Is there anything that you would change if you could looking back at what you have done career-wise?
2: I've had uh, several instances where I've had to make big decisions in the course of my career. You know, I came out at a period when public administration in the academy was growing rapidly. Uh, the year I think I left, uh, uh, graduated from Maxwell 1974 and got my PhD, I had a wealth of uh, job opportunities, including several in California that I had not even envisioned. I was, when I went to my dissertation chair, Charlie Levine, Charlie sort of ripped up the list of places that I was going to apply to. And he said, here are 90 places, apply to all of them. And, uh <laughs> uh many of them were in california so i had uh, job opportunities at U- uc davis and uc irvine uh and talked seriously with the people at usc uh the job uh market was somewhat different in those days because it tended to be more spring oriented than fall as it is now i had some tough decisions to make of, uh, on the sort of the direction i took because i did have a number of good opportunities available to me And, uh, Charlie had a great deal of respect for the people at UC Irvine. And, uh, he basically said, go to Irvine, work there for six years. Uh, if you don't get tenure or you may not, you may well not get tenure. It's a demanding place. Uh, you'll still wind up on your feet somewhere else. And so I took his advice and, um, never regretted it. Uh, but it turned out to be a good choice because, uh, I did very well at Irvine, uh, learned a lot, was stimulated by my colleagues, had a lot of responsibility from day one as a a beginning assistant professor. I think that challenge uh, sort of fulfilled perhaps, you know, my sort of own uh, internal inclinations to be engaged and and to be active. and, And maybe was also just a reflection that uh, I had learned how to be obsessive, compulsive in my youth and in my uh, my undergraduate life and graduate graduate study. No regrets there, although there were some important choices. But I, you know, I think that sort of turned out marvelously well. Of course, the other juncture in my career was, after 11 years at Irvine, was uh, to think about leaving, partly because uh, the program was moving more in a business direction. It had been what we call a generic school when I started. And um, I didn't see myself as mainly teaching business students uh, and working within a business-oriented environment. Uh, and then the opportunity at Indiana University Bloomington came along uh, at SPIA, the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. And again, I sort of relied to, to a large degree on the advice from my mentor, one of my mentors, Charlie Levine, And Charlie had been a student in political science in the late 60s, early 70s at Bloomington before he joined the faculty at uh, Maryland and then uh, at the Maxwell School. And, uh, you know, Charlie said, uh, or Charlie sort of, I think, brokered sort of the discussions with with IU, but uh, he had... He had told me many years earlier when I had gotten an offer from another campus in the IU system, he said, you don't want to go to Indiana University unless you go to Bloomington. Of course, that that was probably colored by his experiences there. We have lots of good campuses in Indiana University. But I sort of took him to heart in 1974 when I had an, my first opportunity with Indiana University. And I also took his advice to heart when i had the subsequent opportunity and the conversations with chuck bonser and colleagues uh, then at at indiana university in in late 84 early 85 and i decided to sort of shift uh, universities but interestingly you know i just really spent mo- most of my career at two universities uc irvine and uh indiana university although i did get exposure to uh, to the Indianapolis campus for six years as an administrator, uh, and in effect working uh, outside the Bloomington environment. I also spent time at uh, University of Wisconsin, at the La Follette School for a sabbatical, and at Yonsei, and at Chinese U, and Catholic University of Leuven. So I've been exposed to lots of universities. Uh, I've been fortunate to be affiliated with two uh, excellent places and uh, places that were as much made by the colleagues I had as by uh, by the sort of the internal rules and culture of the universities themselves
1: uh, one thing I do want to kind of ask about is you know you have you know this wide variety of experience and you have a fairly lengthy you know publication record uh, you know one of the things that a lot of uh, PhD students now and you know, more junior faculty are having is kind of trying to figure out that work-life balance between you know what you have to do professionally, but also how do you maintain the home life and your family and everything else? You know, kind of thinking back about your career, how have you kind of worked to maintain that balance or what has worked for you?
2: Well, you know, if there's one area where I would say that I maybe have haven't done as well as I should, it's probably the work-family balance my wife can testify that I've spent many days away from home or many, you know, many hours sort of in the office rather than being at home. I've, uh, been fortunate to have, uh, a spouse who's supported me. I also have two great daughters. I'm getting a little bit emotional. One is a, one is has a master of social work and, uh, runs the, uh, the recovery center is the executive director of the recovery center, uh, in Bloomington. Uh, oh, wow. the other is, uh, as a manager for a nonprofit, uh, that runs the Medicaid program in the state of Massachusetts. So although they didn't necessarily want to pursue the same course as their father, they are in what I would call public service and mm-hmm. sort of committed to, uh, Making their communities and the and the people with whom they interact uh, in their programs better off uh, because of their service. Of course, my wife is, was also engaged in public service for many years uh, in the child care end of things, and she ran the uh, the Bloomington or the Monroe County school systems. Uh, School-age care programs, before and after school, and a, f- a variety of other related programs for over 20 years. So, you know, we've had a we have a family that appreciates public service. My oldest daughter knows that I lost or I've spent many of her birthdays at Academy of Management meetings, uh, which was one of the sacrifices both she and I had to make. In terms of the career I had, the Academy of Management always met or usually met during her birthday. so if we were celebrating her birthday, it had to be either after the Academy of management meetings or after uh but not during the meetings but you know i I would certainly counsel people to find as many ways of uh intersecting with their families and and sort of giving up uh work time for family time. Part of that is probably sort of getting away for uh, trips, other engagements uh, 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 during the summers and the like. But you gotta find, you have to find ways, I think, of uh, maintaining that balance. I probably erred sometimes in too much uh, effort toward uh, work. And, you know, I, we, we write these days about the dark side of public service motivation. You know, I think there is sort of a there is a sort of propensity to become so committed to service that it can uh, sort of harm or diminish our ability to sort of interact uh, in other parts of our lives. As I indicate, I think my wife and kids understood that, or at least in retrospect understood the uh, the trade-offs that I was making and have sort of forgiven me for time away. And uh, now as a grandfather, I try to spend a little bit more time, and a retiree, try to spend a little bit more time with the grandkids and and the family and the like. So maybe I'm finding some ways to sort of make up for that now, Uh, but we're still sort of closely connected, which is the uh, ultimate uh, result, I think, that we're looking for.
1: Right. So I have to ask really quick, how many grandkids do you have?
2: I have three, and they're all boys. <laughs> um, of course, I had two daughters, so it, it gives me a chance to experience uh, boys and uh, and have a relationship with boys, although as a grandfather, I have a lot more latitude to spoil them <laughs> and uh, not to worry about sort of setting limits or rules for them. So uh, we have lots of fun, and my next trip is with, and the eight-year-old grandson who uh my daughter oldest daughter and he and i are all going to meet in washington for spring break for a week and so uh he wants to go with his uh, grandfather on an experience i i took his brother to the uh, winter olympics in uh, gognum last uh, uh, actually a year ago tomorrow we left oh. both the eight-year-old and the now 14-year-old are hockey players and so we've spent four days on the uh greatest uh, olympic hockey uh that we could find uh the gold medal games the um bronze medal we did see the uh women american women beat the canadian women in the gold medal game that was uh quite an experience
1: oh, that's really cool uh, who do you root for then
2: i i go along with the hockey because uh because my grandsons and my son-in-law is a hockey coach in Connecticut. Uh, he's been over 20 years been a high school ho- the high school hockey coach in in Enfield, Connecticut. They love the Islanders uh, because the Islanders were uh, sort of the home team. my my son-in-law is from uh, Long Island, and so the Islanders are his team and uh, so I root for the Islanders. <laughs> I used to like the Blackhawks when I was in uh, Chicago because Bobby Hull and Stan Makita and, uh, and folks were all playing at the time. But, uh, you know, hockey is not my first sport. Uh, and I'm also a shareholder, and uh, I, I don't want to say part owner, but a shareholder in the greatest pro football team in the history of the universe.
1: So you're a Packers fan then?
2: I am. So I, I met Vince Lombardi at uh, as I was waiting for tickets once. I didn't meet him, make that, but he greeted the fans one morning. Actually, it was for the Baltimore game when the Packers were playing Baltimore in a playoff game and they had tied, I think, in the regular season. That was the one that went into five periods with the uh, disputed Don Chandler field goal. But I was at that game also. So I've, I've been at many uh, historic Packer games.
1: I'll talk about the Packers all day long, but yeah. kind of getting back to the issue at hand. One of the you know, things I'm kind of curious about is you do have this you know large collection of research. How do you go about choosing the topics that your individual papers are actually going to focus on?
2: Uh, that's a good question. I think there's a so, so process. I If you go back, for instance, to one of my more influential and, and distinctive papers, and that's the uh, 1990 paper by uh, Lois Wise and I uh, on public Mm -hmm. service motivation. You know, that sort of, I think we've sort of expressed at least indirectly or implicitly in the introduction that both I and I think Lois had studied civil service reform and had been engaged in, you know, conversations about sort of the nature of the civil service from the late 1970s to the late 1980s. So it was over a period of 10 years where we did research that was related to the reforms and basically the agenda that was established by by Scotty Campbell and others who modified the federal civil service and introduced, uh, you know, labor relations for reforms, civil service or merit pay reforms and other things. And then after that, you, know, you get to a point where you say, well, We've tried this. We've looked at this for a long time. It hasn't given us what we wanted it to do. Where do we go to now? And, of course, I had been uh, exposed by my professors at Syracuse to this idea that uh, the public service ethos is, ethos is important. Public service is different. Uh, people in the public service maybe march to a different drummer. And I got to the point of saying, well... You know we've we've studied the the reforms introduced that have as much a foundation in post World War II general management uh, as as uh, foundation in anything else, and uh, so I said, well, let's sort of begin to look at different uh, sort of a different philosophy, a different uh, process, a different set of cognitions about how individuals are motivated. And, uh, that you know, that started the research on public service motivation. You know, typically, I think it, my sort of decisions about research really relate to, one is, I guess, opportunities. You know, that, for instance, uh, the 2009 paper I did with uh, a couple of doctoral students, Trent Engbers and Soyun so Jun, that was a research synthesis of research on Uh, pay for performance, really sort of uh, became salient because of two things. One, there there had been a lot of studies that were conducted uh, over the uh, 20-plus years in which we were pursuing performance pay in the public sector. And we had gotten to this juncture where people were proposing yet again, or people had engaged in yet again another set of reforms in the federal government, I think the third, the third since, uh, the original reforms from Jimmy Carter in 1978. So you sort of throw your hands up in the air, say, well, this is about the time to sort of undertake some, uh, further look at performance pay, which is what we did. And we call that uh, paper, uh, back to the future, uh, which was basically trying to say, you know, we keep, we, we keep, uh, moving forward by looking back, Uh, but in looking back, what do we learn about uh, our past experiences? And I I think collectively those past experiences, I I think again, uh, suggest that the motivational process uh, is different in uh, public institutions than it is in private, uh, that money matters less, what you do and the difference you make matters more Pursuing what I would call higher level intrinsic motivations or motivations that are associated with public values are, are more consequential and more motivating uh, than the extrinsic rewards that, you know, seek to sort of recognize people externally rather than let them pursue what makes a difference to them internally. A difference sometimes that's grounded, you know, in the sort of the broader sense of uh, who we are as a community. And so, you know, opportunity, uh, and then sort of, you know, some something, uh, an immediate trigger, you know, those are two factors, you know, is it is a, a particular research question ripe for study at a, at a given time? And is it salient to not only me, but to a lot of other people? Uh, or to the policy process or to the administrative process. So sort of an immediate trigger that you know conveys sort of the importance of the research topic together with uh, the viability of, uh, of pursuing a research a particular research question at a given time. I think you know they have to come together. And those, those have been two factors that have been important to me in the whole range of things that I've studied over my career. Certainly. I mean, I I started with, you know, doing research on public sector labor relations and did my dissertation on that. But, you know, in the first half of the 1970s, probably the most consequential issue we faced uh, was uh, collective bargaining in the public sector. And people were, you know, scared about the, who was making the decisions, who can, who had the, held the power, was it the labor organizations or the the elected and appointed leaders whether they be at the state government state level or local level or to some extent the, the federal level all that was uh, the rules were different there but so you know I've I've sort of taken up tried to take up salient and timely questions during the whole uh, my whole career one reason why I sort of left the labor relations study, though, is it became a it became a lot less uh, consequential once uh, we realized that the unions were not as powerful uh, as we thought they were, and uh, you know Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, uh, and we were we went on to another set of issues.
1: In terms of thinking about PhD students or junior faculty, what kind of advice would you give them? As they are starting to look to you know, create their own research agendas,
2: one of the things that's been enormously important to me is what I would call mentors. You need to you know get people who are reliable sources of advice, support, knowledge. You know, during my career, I can point to at least four people. Of course, I mentioned already Charlie Levine, mm-hmm. who was a godsend. You know, Charlie came to uh, Maxwell, we had lots of instability in the faculty ranks in public administration when I was there. And I think that was sort of characteristic of Maxwell in the 60s and 70s, with the exception of Dwight Waldo's presence. But, uh, you know, Charlie sort of helped rescue me when I was in need of a dissertation director. uh, And we were good friends and uh, worked together very well. For 15 years, he created opened a lot of doors for me. I always learned from him, uh, and so that was a marvelous mentoring relationship. When I got to UC Irvine, Ken Kramer was my senior colleague in public administration. Ken was a great grant getter. Again, opened doors for me, supported me, was a sort of a great collaborator. We wrote lots of things together, partly simply because we were interested in similar topics, and you know, shared our you know love of the field of public administration Lyman Porter was my first dean Lyman was sort of a, an outsider in terms of field he was in organizational behavior but was a um, was a pathbreaker with respect to uh, constructs like job satisfaction and organizational commitment which we sort of take as givens today but I learned a lot from what he was doing in those areas that's subsequently helped me not only in my uh, research that I published on, in the, on the topic of organizational commitment, which has gotten a fair bit of attention, but largely because of, of the work he, uh, some work he had done and my sort of um, embracing that, but also later uh, learning that creating a scale like he had done on organizational commitment made great sense if you wanted to sort of advance research on public service motivation. If you, if you measure it, it's real. Uh, and so I built it and they came. That, that was sort of a, a marvelous uh, learning. I, and, and Lyman was largely responsible for that. And then, you know, most recently, but actually somebody who sort of covered my whole career was uh, George Fredrickson, who was one of my professors at Maxwell School uh, and was somebody with whom I've interacted since 19, I think, 71 as a student and then subsequently as a uh, somebody who took his advice and someone who learned from George and uh, had some doors opened by George. So, you know, getting a mentor and sort of finding reliable people with whom you can interact and who, who judge them and you trust and can provide you support. You know, it's not, not necessarily following their lead as much as it is uh, learning from them and getting support from them and and trusting their advice, and you know that's important uh, for junior faculty and PhD students. And if you don't have that, uh, you're at a loss from the first stages of your career. I think the other thing that, and part of this is reconstructed logic. Remember, we're talking about a a forty a career that's now spanned forty five years. So I'm sort of going back and trying to uh, draw upon uh, you know emotions and and ideas and thinking that goes mm-hmm. back to the early 1970s and some of that is sort of hidden maybe deeply in my memory or uh, and maybe not also in that sort of part of my psyche that I can access but I think I probably took some chances uh, even that example I used of going to UC Irvine and going to a place where there were relatively few public administration people but everybody around me was you know mathematician or a statistician or An organization, or an operations researcher, or an organizational behavioralist, was really sort of a sort of a a step into unknown territory. One that I took partly because I trusted the advice of my mentor, and also respected the people that I encountered there. But you got to take some chances. I, you know, even and I've sort of encountered uh, as the par editor most recently uh, situations where I would think that boy, here's a really good opportunity to make a mark on the field. Uh, And I would approach people to sort of undertake a particular project. Some would take me up on it. Others would say, well, you know, it's too much work. And uh, I'm not sure that there's a payoff there. Of course, you know, some of my biggest payoffs have been from research syntheses and uh, sort of writing that article that was... uh, maybe sort of critical of the field or sort of trying to take a, a difference st- or trying to step out from the from the ordinary and from the accepted. And so taking some chances or, or taking some risks I think is important. The other thing I would, the other piece of advice is that I, and I think again I'm sort of tra- trying to translate uh, the value I got from going to UC Irvine where I was exposed to all sorts of things that uh, were new to me, even though I had just finished the PhD. You know, you think you come out of the PhD and you sort of know everything in the world. And I, I did know a lot about public administration. But going to a place like Irvine and a, and a school of administration where most of the fields were outside of mine or different than mine, sort of taught me that, you know, there's a great value from sort of stretching yourself and being exposed to challenges and also sort of working with people who are uh, themselves, uh, you know, extraordinary uh, gifted scholars. And so, you know, my, I learned from Lyman Porter and Ken Kramer and others, but I also sort of was able to work with them and sort of build my own repertoire of skills and enhance my repertoire of skills. So the piece of advice there I would, would, would be to sort of uh, interject yourself in the research projects that are going to connect you to other talented people and to help you learn and develop. In terms of things I would recommend to uh, junior faculty and PhD students, find a great mentor or mentors, and you probably won't have just one during your career. Take some risks. You know, there are formulas for getting articles accepted. They're not necessarily formulas for making a difference and for being influential. Uh, so sometimes you got to break out of the formula and take a risk. Uh, and then third is uh, uh, to sort of put yourself in situations that are uh, unique and different uh, that help build your sort of repertoire of skills and continue your learning process. And you've, you know, read this piece I've contributed to uh, JPE, Journal of Public Affairs Education, where, you know, I, I found that my sabbaticals, were marvelous learning experiences. Of course, my sabbaticals were also, you know, my sabbatical in 1992-93 was an opportunity, gave me an opportunity to connect with people in Washington at the National Academy of Public Administration at uh, in the Health and Human Services. But I subsequently went to um, the La Follette school where i was also able to to develop the public service motivation scale that i published in 1996 you know those were learning experiences and opportunities through the sabbaticals that sort of have spiced up and sort of kept engaged a career that's lasted uh, more than four decades and uh, now i do about as much as i want to do and probably not as much as i could do but I'm sort of uh, enjoying the opportunity to sort of take on a, a few small things or smaller things and uh, do those uh, to sort of round out what I've you know learned and done over the last 45 years. Yeah.
1: Since we are kind of coming up towards the end there is one thing I want to ask and that is you know thinking about where we are as a field you know we've certainly had changed since the beginning of your career and thinking forward you know where do you think that we as you know scholars we as a field should be putting our attention towards, or what do you think? What should we do from here on out?
2: Well, if, if 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 you made me God, or I'm interpreting the question in to some extent in those terms, one of the things I've I've written recently uh, and done or given was the Gauss lecture uh, in uh, 2017. Uh, at the American Political Science Association meetings. Of course, John Gauss was uh, uh, a giant in our field from the year of the 20s, 30s, 40s. He was also subsequently, I think, a a president of the American Political Science Association. And my Gauss lecture focused on taking uh, professionalism seriously. And that, to me, is one of the areas where the field of public administration, I think, has a lot to gain uh, and could benefit if it sort of integrated the more formal study and serious study of professionalism into the field, I mean, you know, we started uh, much of a, what we what we're about uh, sort of can be traced back to the founding of ICMA in uh, 1913, and that was ICMA as a sort of uh, initiated a respective respected professional group within public administration, the city management profession. But I, you know, I don't see that we've embraced the study of professionalism. And the other thing I associate with professionalism, I I associate two things that are are very topical or tend to be topical in public administration over the years. One is values, particularly public values, and the other is ethics. And, um, I think we sort of need to find ways of integrating values and ethics into the study of public administration. I think one way of doing that is uh, to study the professions and to study public professions and to, to look at them in context. And uh, to some extent, I see this as an extension of the, my research on public service motivation, but you know, I, I would like to see the embrace of professions and professionalism. And uh, one of the points I made in the Gauss lecture was, this is a track that Dwight Waldo put us on 50 years ago, uh, and we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Minnebrook Conference. Uh, but Dwight said, well, we ought to maybe think about ourselves as professions or think about ourselves as a profession and think about ourselves as professionals. That has lots of implications, but I don't think we've done a particularly good job. Although we've, we've, as I indicate in the lecture, we've made some efforts to do that, but I think we took the wrong, wrong directions. And I think we need to sort of reconsider uh, what directions uh, would help integrate professions and professionalism into our research and into thinking about public administration uh, as a field you know, the other area I think that's, that I think we need to continue thinking about, and I certainly had uh, enormous concerns about this as the editor of PAR, was what we've talked about since I entered the field, and that was the relationship between theory and practice. We are, I think, now at our strongest that I can, that I've ever known the field with respect to our Thinking theoretically, and in, and uh, uh, embedding uh, what we see in the world of practice in uh, theoretical terms and in theoretical frameworks and and in the theory, and we've also I think done made great strides in terms of the quality of our research methods and our uh, empirical study of public administration. But I you know I think we need to continue to think about the connection between theory and practice, which I think is, um, from the perspective of people in the academy, I think has diminished. And of course we have, we see lots of criticisms of, uh, the theory practice connection or the ability of the academic to, to, uh, cr- um, cross the boundaries with practitioners. But, um, I see that as sort of a continuing area of uh, tension and the need for redoubling our efforts to connect theory and practice if we want to be meaningful as a, uh, an applied field of study.
1: Yeah, prior to my academic career, I worked on the Hill for a number of years. And you know, we paid a lot of attention to what came out of economics because they had the capacity to kind of make their work applied to a certain extent. And you know, we could understand what it actually meant for what we were doing whereas a lot of the more PA work, you know, we had a harder time kind of understanding where that connection was.
2: I think we still have that difficulty of sort of making that connection, but I personally would like to see more of our, you know, young scholars and and senior scholars, for that matter, uh, engaged in meaningful conversations with uh, practitioners uh, to try to sort of make sure that what we do is you know not necessarily we're we're not necessarily studying what's important to them for answering a question immediately before them tomorrow, but you know to answer those long term questions that are sort of will help sort of shape not only how we think about the field academically but what we do practically
1: I'd like to thank you for coming on today and joining me for the conversation for being willing to come on and join us for academics at p a
2: and my pleasure, Bruce.
1: So what'd you think?
0: There's a couple points that are really interesting. But I mean, the twin who's a practitioner, how cool is that?
1: Maybe people knew it was a thing, but it was definitely something that was outside of what I was really expecting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would have gone to more ASPAs just to meet the twin. I know.
1: I want to know if he's actually going to be there next week since this <laughs> comes up like the day before ASPA. Are we going to have people like running around being like, are you Jim Perry's twin? Are you the twin?
0: Well, they would know he would look like a twin.
1: (laughs) I guess we could always just run up to Jim Perry and be like, hey.
0: Are you the twin? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, but I mean, having a touchstone in the practitioner life, what a great way for an academic to be able to reflect and talk about their work. And in this podcast, I think we are really touching on the sort of two sides of public administration. And so, it's not surprising to me that his work is so relevant if he was able to have those ongoing conversations about what academic life means to practitioners with someone as close as a brother.
1: I think one of the problems we have is that we talk about this idea that the public administration research we do is going to have these big influences, but a lot of it comes back to are we meeting the demands and the needs of what practitioners are experiencing? Absolutely. But in this case, he doesn't have necessarily that much of that practitioner experience outside of the internship that he did with ICMA. But he does have that constant connection, which I think gives kind of context for the career and the research interest over time, because there's always going to be something that ties it back to what they actually need at that given moment in time.
0: So now this question breaks a little bit at I think there are journalistic ethics issues here, but you mentioned that you had a really great conversation offline too. Was there anything from that that you think our listeners should hear? Well,
1: I don't know if it really breaks journalistic ethics. <laughs> <laughs> the act of doing interviews is definitely something that is new to me. I was a journalism major in undergrad, which you would think between that and learning to research would be some kind of experience with interviews, but that's not really what you re- at least in my experience, now what you learn along the way. And so you know, doing the interview, I was very focused on, you know, here's this kind of list of questions and let's have the conversation around them. And then our system, as soon as you stop recording, it takes a minute for the audio to upload. And while it's uploading, we were talking about a project that he's currently working on around professionalism and the practitioner side of things. And then we kind of get into this nice conversation of you know where the field has basically kind of stopped thinking about professionalism and saying, you know, maybe there's something to this idea of a profession. I mean, we were on for probably another 30, 45 minutes or so after we stopped recording, talking about that, which I think was a lot more fun, at least for me, than the main base of the interview. I mean, the interview itself was interesting, but I was exciting kind of really got into the other part of it.
0: Well, and I mean, isn't it interesting that here he is in retirement, a distinguished professor, um, someone, everyone in PA has read work from. And he's on to another great, exciting new project that has will have real impact for our community.
1: Oh, absolutely. We were also talking, he's been working on a book that he's trying to finish that's kind of a swan song, as he put it, to Public Service Motivation.
0: Okay, well, thanks, Bruce, for doing that interview with James Perry. And thank you, James Perry, for being on the podcast and sharing your experience with us all.
1: Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. And I guess we say thanks to everybody for listening in.
0: And bye.